Uh, today, is, if you were here last week, you know what's coming. Today I'm going to talk about, I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches about hell. And last week was a preparatory message, really just entitled Thinking Well About Hard Things, or Thinking Well About Hell, even. And the three points that we came through last week were simple. It was simply the idea that when we think about hard things, we should remember to be humble. After all, God is God, we are not. We should remember to be grateful. After all, what God is doing is is a good thing, regardless of how it affects us. And we should remember to be mournful. Because lots of people wind up in eternity suffering for their sins. That's the story of the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. And today, as I preach about hell, I want to add two more things to that. First of all, I want to preach with compassion. I want to preach with compassion to those who are in Christ, but find this concept so difficult to grasp and certainly difficult to appreciate. But I also want to preach with compassion because the truth is, is that there are many who will spend their eternity there and... I can't get my mind around that being anything but terrible for them. But at the same time, so I want to preach with compassion, but I also want to preach with confidence because hell is part of the gospel message. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel message, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It, it, it would be easy for me as someone who makes an effort at communicating and for you as someone who has plenty of people that you know who don't really believe any of this, it'd be easy to say that, man, if, if, if these people heard what the Bible teaches plainly about hell without qualifications or watering it down, they would be offended, they would walk away, and I would just say, man, like, does the gospel message have power Or not. Obviously, to those that are perishing, the gospel message is the aroma of death. But to those who are being saved, it is the aroma of life. Yes, the truth is, is that the doctrine of hell would offend most of your unbelieving friends. But there is, in your circle of friendships, no doubt, a few, one, who would hear this teaching and be awakened by this message. That's what the gospel promises. You're not smarter than that promise. And you're not a more effective communicator than God's word, and neither am I. So I want to preach this with compassion, but also with confidence. This is part of the gospel message, and the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. So how shall we proceed? In this difficult topic. Well, as I mentioned last week, I'm going to rely considerably on some of what Jonathan Edwards taught about hell. I will also veer considerably from what he taught as well. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his hottest sermons on hell, used Job 31.3 as his text. And Job 31.3 in the King James, which he would have used, says, "...is not destruction for the wicked." and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity. 
And Edwards, in that message, entitled A Strange Punishment for the Workers of Iniquity, leans heavily into this question of what makes hell strange. He leans heavily into the question of the strangeness or unnaturalness of hell. And I will do so as well. But before I do that, I want to try to, to, to make the case that in, in, in some respects, hell is exceedingly strange and unnatural to our sensibilities. But in other respects, it is exceedingly natural. So hell is both natural and unnatural in different ways. So let's talk about why, in some respects, it is natural. And the first point I would just let you know on in that, in that area is that, you know, just about all belief systems across all of time have included some concept of punishment after death. So there's this sort of faux hipster cosmopolitan thing that assumes that, that it's only in Kansas amongst a bunch of evangelicals where you'll hear such a divisive theology such as hell. But then if you went out into the rest of the world where people are more enlightened and other cultures and so forth, they wouldn't have this concept. No, actually throughout history, across really all religions, people have had some concept of punishment after death. Um, there's a book that I, I used as I worked through this message, and the title I don't love. It's by a guy named Clint Archer. The title of the book is A Visitor's Guide to Hell, A Manual for Temporary Entrance and Those Who Would Prefer to Avoid Eternal Damnation. And the title is a bit clickbaity and also kind of maybe a little uh, Harry Potter-ish, I think. But he's not, he's not saying that, uh, that, that people have actually visited hell in return. That's not true. People claim that it's not true. But what he's saying is, he's going through the scriptures and he's saying, this, this is what hell is like. And one of the things he does as he explains the history of hell across all religions is he, he makes this point. He says, if you got a Jewish rabbi, a Protestant pastor, a Catholic priest, a Muslim imam, a Hindu guru, and a Celtic druid in the same room, and sought common theological ground, the doctrine most likely to be agreed upon across all those groups is the concept of eternal or punishment after death. So in some respects, when we say that hell is natural, what I mean by that is, is that you know, pretty much everybody throughout time has had some idea that in order for this whole life to make sense, there needs to be a judgment that follows this life. So think about that logically for a moment. Hell is connected, I think, to the, to the, to the human need for justice. How, how would you judge someone's whole life? Well, you'd have to wait until it was over, right? But then who can do that judgment? Someone outside of or beyond time. And then, of course, you have the whole problem of, 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 of secrets, right? Someone could be outwardly good but inwardly not good. They, how would you judge that person? They might have us all fooled. Well, you would need someone who's not only beyond time, beyond this life alone, but you would also need someone who sees, who knows. And so this concept of the need for a justice which occurs to judge the value or the righteousness or wickedness of a life after that life is over, I think that's one of the reasons. There's a philosophical need for that as we begin to think through concepts related to justice. In cultures where the human justice system is seriously flawed, the need for eternal justice becomes much more felt. So if you were to look through the songs of the slaves, the American slaves, and analyze 
the call for justice that they know cannot and will not come as it ought to come in this lifetime. There seems to be this basic human expectation that after we die, our whole life, both inside and out, both visible and hidden, is evaluated, weighed, judged by someone outside of time who knows even our most inner thoughts. So hell can go where earthly justice cannot. There are also some biblical reasons why I say that, that, that hell is a natural kind of thing. For one thing, it's natural because most people are going there. Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus, the foremost teacher on the subject of hell, says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So the world is fond of saying that many paths lead to God. It's just the opposite. There's one path that leads to God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, John 14. But there could conceivably be as many paths to hell as there are individuals. Isaiah says that all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have each wandered our own way. And we're all wandering, let's suppose, our own individual paths. But all of those individual paths do wind up in the one place, hell. So in some sense, hell is the most natural thing in the world because most people, Jesus teaches, are going there. And we should also say that it's, it's somewhat natural because Jesus also teaches that there will be plenty of people in hell who consider themselves to be Christian. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." So there's a sense in which hell is natural because from even a a human philosophical sense, it seems to be this, this, this idea that won't give up no matter how modern we become. But there's also a sense that the scriptures point to, it says, you know, most people are headed there. Even many people who consider themselves Christians. The truth is, is the Bible teaches that we would all go there. That's our natural trajectory if it weren't for grace. Earlier uh, in the service, Josh read from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me reread that to you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. Everyone would go to hell if it weren't for grace. But this is also, if you think about it, there's another reason why it's natural. It's because it's just the natural trajectory of what we do as human beings. Romans 1, 25 says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So the problem of sin has to do with theft. 
God has filled this world with many wonderful things. He's filled this world with relationships and money and words and stories and security and comfort and warmth and cool. He's made this amazing, wonderful world. And what we do as sinners is we take what he's created and we make those things the center of our universe, divorcing God from the equation altogether. Well, that's just thievery. That's just theft. So what would happen if one day God said, I will no longer allow you to have access to any of my good things? You've proven time and time again that the only thing you're going to do with them is you're going to hijack them. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna steal them. So I will create a future in which you simply no longer have access to my good things. Well, the thing about that is, is man, that's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff we don't even think about. A lot of stuff we're not even grateful for. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this is the problem with our interaction with creation. We worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. When we take up the creation to enjoy it, we do it in an unlawful way. We do it in a way that disregards God's opinion and certainly don't do it as a way of leading us to love God. So Jeremiah 2.13 says there's these two problems. Number one, God says they've, they've forsaken me, the living water. And number two, they've dug out broken cisterns that hold no water. So the, the idea is, is that what, what's not mentioned in this text is that all the strength we have to dig out the cisterns, the broken cisterns, all the strength we have to make another choice, all of the other choices themselves, that's all from God. So you could decide, like, I don't want to worship God, but I would like to uh, be about money. I would like to be about comfort and security well, that's fine, but, but your capacity to earn that money, the very existence of money itself, and the existence of the comfort that it provides you, that's all from God. So what happens if you were to be placed in a reality in which your opportunity to steal is taken away? Because there are no more good things. We'll talk more about that in a moment. You might say, lastly, that hell is natural because the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, is, as I said at the beginning of this, the foremost teacher on the subject. So hell is integral to Christianity because the founder of Christianity made it an integral part of his teaching. So that's some of the ways that hell is actually in some ways very natural. Most people are headed there. We would all be headed there if it weren't for grace. And it is ultimately the natural trajectory of our most natural heart to value that which God created over the God that created it. Now let's talk about the ways that hell is unnatural and strange. What I'm doing here is I'm just taking everything that Jesus taught about hell and summarizing it. So one way I might summarize it is to say that hell is unmixed, unmeasured, unending, and unimaginable. Here's one way that it's, it's strange. What I mean by unmixed is that in this life, every hardship we experience on earth is greatly diluted 
with various forms of goodness and mercy. Every bit of hardship we experience on earth is greatly diluted. It is mixed with much mercy. Go to a person you know who has suffered the most in the last few years and ask them if this is true. Very likely they will say it is true. The worst pains we have experienced in this life have been just teaspoons of bitterness in a big old cup full of mercy. It's still really bitter. Don't get me wrong. But it is far more mixed or diluted than we may realize. But hell is strange because it will be the first time any of us will ever experience 100% pure, undiluted suffering. You've never experienced it before. You've never even come close. It's also unmeasured. If we've experienced God's anger in any way in this life, it's been carefully and minutely measured as he has patiently endured our sin until the day of judgment. Any anger you've experienced, any wrath you've experienced from God has been carefully and micro-measured. But hell is strange because it will be the first time a human being no matter how bad their life has been, hell will be the first time a human being will ever experience God's wrath without measure. Simply in full blast. No reduction, no patience, no uh, steadfastness. It will simply be undiluted, unmeasured wrath. And then, of course, it's unending The hardships we endure in this life are sometimes really rough, but they're relatively short. Even if a hardship were to last your entire lifetime, I hope you understand how short your lifetime is. But one of the worst things about hell is that it doesn't end. So here you experience the unmixed hardship, the unmixed suffering. It is pure suffering. It is pure wrath, and it never ends. And so maybe the way to sum this up is it really is truly unimaginable. There's simply no way you could prepare yourself for hell. There's simply no way to brace yourself for the darkness that you will find there. Uh, Another way that it's unnatural is it's, it's just unnatural to our created nature. And here I'll quote from Edwards. Uh, He makes the point that all men are reasonable beings and naturally and desire happiness and abhor mystery. This is just just in our DNA. This is our operating system. This is what we were built to do. We love good things. We despise painful things. And Edwards continues, God bestows many things in this world, both upon good and bad, that are very agreeable to nature. God is so good that he seems to provide for us here that which shall be pleasant and agreeable to us. He by his bounty hath garnished the heavens and beautified the face of the earth and filled all nature with delights to please our sight, to salute our ears and to gratify the taste and please the natural disposition of the soul in many instances, 
There is a natural, there is a craving in the soul that requires enjoyment. But when God punishes ungodly men, they shall have no enjoyment. Nothing to gratify them in any instance. There will not be so much as one thing agreeable to the disposition of their nature. You know, in this life, when we don't get what we want, we dwell on it. We harp on it. God may shower our lives with abundant blessings, but the one thing he has withheld sticks out like a sore thumb. Hell is a place where all of it gets withheld. Think of how miserable you are now when you don't get your way in something you really, really desire. Now look at your whole life and realize that in most of your life, God has exceeded what you could have asked or imagined. You've got it pretty good. But the one thing he won't give you has got you twisted up into knots. Now imagine how you'll feel when everything you want is denied you all the time. Every desire for goodness and peace and pleasure is denied in hell. Edward says it this way, men often are overcome with grief and sorrow when their desires are denied in two or three particular instances, even when they have the greater parts of their enjoyments yet continued. How miserable will they be that every desire is denied and contradicted to the utmost in everything and every circumstance and everything brought at once upon them that is grating and horrible to nature. So hell is unnatural because it's strange because our love for pleasure will be as strong as ever, but our access to God's gifts will be cut off and there is no pleasure apart from God's gifts. We will no longer be able to steal his gifts. They will be removed from us as God is removed from us. There's another way that hell is strange and unnatural And that is because it defies all of our natural built-in coping mechanisms. We were built with certain coping mechanisms. We have a variety of ways to cope with pain in this life that will be of no value in hell. Uh, So let me just give you an outline of some of those coping mechanisms. Uh, First of all, you won't be able to work it out. When something terrible happens to us on earth, we usually have enough resources to bear up under the hardship. Now, it may take us a little bit of time. We might get knocked down, but we usually get our senses about us, grit our teeth, and figure out a way to press on. It takes us a while to adapt, but usually we can work out the hardships that come. But hell, there there just won't be anything to work out. You won't have any of the resources that you have right now because those resources are a gift from God. You will experience total impotence, total impotence, total futility in every way. Edward says, the stoutest heart will then sink. Their courage will fail. They will in no manner be able to support themselves under it. There is a vast disproportion between men's strength and the strength of those torments. So you can't work it out, but you also can't wait it out. One of our natural coping mechanisms 
is that sometimes when you really can't fix the problem, you just put your head down and you just wait for the storm to pass. And it does pass. But in hell, the storm won't pass. You can't work it out. You can't wait it out. There are zero distractions in hell. Right now in this life, we self-medicate in a million ways to quiet the symptoms of our sadness or discontentment or despair. We shop, we watch TV, we play video games, we drink, or we take prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs. We are experts at self-medicating and distracting ourselves. But hell offers no distractions. It is a place of excruciating sobriety. I want you to think about that for a moment. Hell is a place of excruciating sobriety. There is, no, there is no way to take your mind off what you're experiencing. There is nothing to turn to except the reality in which you find yourself. In fact, I think in hell, you'll despise the concept of distractions. Because many of those who go to hell will go there because they were consistently distracting themselves from asking the hard questions about their souls. From going to people and talking about serious things. They've entertained themselves right into hell. They've shopped themselves. They've decorated themselves right into hell. They would not simply stand up under the the, the, the small measure of sobriety necessary to think through these things. And they have distracted themselves right into a place of excruciating sobriety. There are also zero delusions in hell. Right now, maybe even right now as you're listening to this, you are able to flip your mental gymnastics in a way that deludes yourself in some respect. You delude yourself to think this isn't actually what God teaches. Or you delude yourself into thinking about what, what would be better than this. Or you make this a case about God's justice. And right now, because God has given you the cognitive capacity to do that, you're free to do that. The day will come when your capacity to delude yourself will be eliminated. You will simply be unable any longer to minimize your own sin and maximize someone else's sin as a source of relief. You will simply be sitting there forever, understanding fully your own sin. We lie to ourselves all the time. We ascribe better motives than we truly have toward ourselves. We ascribe worse motives toward others than they have so that we can feel better about ourselves. For many of us, delusion and self-deceit is an imaginary friend that we use as a coping mechanism to move through this painful world. But your imaginary friend won't join you in hell. All you will have there is you. And none of the lies. And none of the distractions. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sense of emotional torment comes clear as he frequently uses that phrase. 
here's what I think one way to describe hell would be. Unmitigated, unsolvable regret. And there's also this, this last coping mechanism that we have. In this life, when all of our other coping mechanisms fail, when a hardship is too much or too long for our bodies or minds to endure, we have this great eject button called loss of consciousness and or death. So that even if things got so far beyond our ability to work it out or to wait it out or to distract ourselves or breathe through the pain, at least there would be the escape in this world from suffering called death. But of course, that's, that's the real problem, isn't it? Hell is eternal. The torment will never pass. There's no future moment of relief that we can hope in or wait for. Think about that. Most of your suffering has been marked with a sense of hope. Hope is a gift from God. Imagine being somewhere in full torment forever without even that gift. Hope is a gift from God. You've stolen it before. And if you go to hell, you won't have the opportunity to steal it again. So all of God's gifts, even death itself, will be absent. Light is God's gift. Friendship is God's gift. Hope is God's gift. Second chances are God's gift. And we've been using those all of our lives in a way that almost takes them entirely for granted. But in hell, all of God's gifts are gone. And we will crave the simplest ones, it seems, as we look to Jesus' teaching on hell. The wrath of God upon our sin in this life is greatly restrained. In hell it won't be. Our coping mechanisms are many in this life. In hell we will have none. Our capacity for delusion is strong. In hell it will not be. So what do we do about all this? Well, I want to say that there are ways that the naturalness and unnaturalness of hell work against us. First of all, because we're naturally headed there, the naturalness of hell is working against us. All of life's momentum is leading there. I was walking down through my apartment complex yesterday and a, a guy had a dog on a leash and the dog saw a squirrel and that leash was pulled tight. And if the owner let go of the leash, the dog would have done one thing and one thing only. Don't mistake any of this hard, honest truth about hell as any kind of glib boasting. Because I want to tell you something. I'm that dog. And if the Lord were to let go of me, I would run headlong into hell. That is the natural momentum and trajectory of my heart apart from Christ. And it is yours as well. So the naturalness of hell is working against us because it is simply the place we should be. And it is simply the place we would take ourselves to if it were not for Christ. 
But there's a way in which the unnaturalness of hell also works against us because it's so difficult to imagine. We've simply never seen anything like it. And it's so distant for us to take seriously. You know why? Because we're foolish. And we boast in today. We boast in tomorrow. Does this offend you? Well, in a way, I think if it doesn't, there's a problem. It seems to me if you were wanting to know, well, should I be worried? I I think I would point you to, if this doesn't change the way you live, if this message doesn't change the way you live, if this doesn't make you walk differently, I think I'd be concerned. If this doesn't cause you in some respect to tremble, if all you get out of this is, well, I'm glad I'm not going there, I, I want to tell you something. Take careful inventory. That does not seem to be a biblical response. What seems to be a biblical response is, as I described last week, at the very least, a sense of mourning for those who will go. And perhaps even more importantly, a serious moment of reflection over whether I'm one of those who think I'm a Christian and who will wind up in hell. Does this offend you? Well, I want to be clear about another thing. If this offends you in the sense that it winds up driving you away from God, then unfortunately, you're simply taking one step closer to hell because you're showing. This is what the Bible teaches. You can decide not to believe the Bible if you'd like to. But what you're doing, even in that choice, is you're saying, I know better. Why? Because I feel it. And because I'm really smart. And the fool does what is right in his own eyes. So if this offends you away from trusting God's word, then I think you should be concerned. This is what the orthodox, historic faith of our ancestors has taught and believed from its inception. There's also a possibility that offends you in a helpful way. We put an odor in natural gas because if we didn't, people would would die all the time. Natural gas has no natural odor and so we place something strong and foul into the mixture so that if there is a gas leak people know something ain't right it's entirely possible for this sermon to serve as the smelling salts in your nose the odor in the thing that's already killing you to let you know hey hey Something isn't right. You see, people go to hell because they don't believe God. Because they think they can mix and match. 
They can pick and choose. So the first step, I think, in responding faithfully to what we've seen today is to say, I don't think this is fiction. If this is what God teaches, I must contend with it there. Because the only way we wind up escaping hell, the Bible says, is by believing what Jesus says. And this is Jesus who's saying these things about hell. We must believe what Jesus says. John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come in the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. would be easy as your friend and as someone who wants your affection to hit the relief valve and make you feel better right now. But I'm not going to do it. You find the relief valve and you talk to Jesus. I dispense most frequently as I think God would call most frequently the pastor to do, assurance and comfort in God's all-surpassing grace and love. Over time, we can sit through sermons, enduring all the difficult moments, knowing that at the end, we'll be patted on our head and told to run along because it's all going to be all right. Well, you go do that with the Lord. I want you to. I hope you find it. And if you don't, I would love to speak with you. Because none of this is hopeless right now. I really do want to speak with you if you walk from this sermon and say, Chris, man, I don't know. Well, I'll promise you one thing. There will not be an ounce of judgment in my heart. And I will. Patiently sit with you and help you to think through what the gospel is saying to you. But I want you to leave this place feeling what I think is the appropriate reaction to this difficult 
word. 